Morning, Christchurch. Let me tell you a story, and I'm curious to know if this lines up with an experience that you've ever had before. About 10 years ago, I was uh, taking my oldest daughter home from a soccer practice. She was about four years old at the time. And after the practice, uh, we were in Kentucky in kind of horse country area with the rolling green hills and um, beautiful horse farms. And we were in my pickup truck. And as we were driving along, it was that moment when the sun is just starting to set. The golden hour kind of stretched out beyond all of the hills. I pulled her I'm standing in front of the microphone. There we go. I pulled my truck over and, um, and took her out of the, the cab, or took her out of the, the car, and we got in the back in the bed of the truck and just watched as the sun set over the hills. And I'm holding my daughter in my arms, and as I'm holding her there, she says, Dad, when we arrive in heaven, how old will we be? It's like a wonderful question from a child. How old will we be? Will I be my age? Will you be your age? Will we all be the same age? And, you know, I just kind of had this moment of holding my little girl saying, I really don't know. I don't know how old, but I, I'm ready for that moment. This moment with you right now just kind of anticipates that one day moment in the new heavens, in the new earth, where someday all things will be made right. We sat there for about 10 minutes, and, um, and the sun set, and the moment faded, and it passed, and got back into the truck and, and just drove on. But it's a memory I remember really vividly uh, in my mind's eye, this deep awareness of goodness, something good and true in that moment, this wanting it not to end, not wanting this moment to be over, and yet now this kind of sadness that that moment doesn't remain on, that it doesn't keep on going. Have you ever had an experience like that before, this deep goodness, but then just a, a sadness that it doesn't remain anymore? It's happened to me other times besides that. I was thinking about this, and some of you know I played sports in high school, and I was thinking about um, one of the last games I ever played on this baseball team together. A group of friends, we'd been together for four years, and um, as the, the team was kind of, we had just finished the game, we weren't going to play anymore, that was the end of the season, and there was this awareness that this group of friends had been my best friends, and this was some of the, up to that point in my life, some of the best years of my life, and then this sadness that the friendship is, is over, this kind of ending of it, a deep goodness in the midst of the sadness as well. I remember when I was only uh, 10 or 11 years old, I was reading through a book series, and I got to the very end of the book and just had this experience of like, I don't want it, it's so good, I don't want it to be over. So satisfying the way it ends, but I don't want this to end. I wish it could keep on going, just remembering that in the middle of the goodness, there's this painful sadness as well. I wish this thing could extend on a little bit longer. What I'm talking about is in all of these moments, a deep joy mixed with a, a sadness, a bit of pain that it doesn't continue on. The joy wasn't permanent. Humans have these experiences of deep longing, stabs of painful sadness that the world is good and yet the world is not enough. Sometimes we call these things nostalgia. Other times we think it's just some romantic idealism. Um, but that doesn't quite capture what I'm describing, the sense that joy is meant to be permanent. And yet we never have the experience that it's permanent. C.S. Lewis writes about this in a famous sermon of his, The Weight of Glory. He says, our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth, that romantic poet, he identified it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. 
If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself. He would not have found joy itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to itself be a remembering. The books, the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it came through them. And what came through them was a longing, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Deep longing for joy that comes through some of those moments in life of walk in the woods in creation, listening to music, the first time you fall in love. But that relationship, that soundtrack, that movie, that walk in creation These are only the conduits bringing the joy. They are not the joy itself. The joy is passing through those moments. They're pointing towards something else, something beyond, the origin of beauty, the origin of goodness. They point to God, to life in his presence. We are in our final week of this sermon series that we've been in, Becoming Who We Are. And we've been looking at key remembrances that the Bible calls us to remember in certain ways. And this is where we've gone so far. Remember you are dust. Remember you are a slave in Egypt. All the way till today, beware lest you forget the Lord. Beware lest you forget the Lord. And we're ending on a more cautionary note. This is a more ominous note uh, to end this sermon series with. And so I want to talk about this caution. Beware lest you forget the, the Lord from two perspectives. First, we're going to look at the perspective of all humanity. All humanity has this experience of the longings, and how you try to fulfill them will be whether or not you're attuned to the Lord. You can forget you are a creature. You were made only with capacities to receive joy from God himself, and if you try to substitute that with anything else, it'll simply crack under the pressure. We'll look, first of all, at the experience of common humanity in John 4, our gospel reading, and then we're going to look at what happens when a follower of the Lord... Someone like Solomon, what happens when you do forget the Lord? How did Solomon forget the Lord? What happened to him that he forgot the Lord? So that's where we'll be going today. You want to have your Bible open to John 4 and 1 Kings 11, or you want to have your scripture passage nearby, as we'll be making references back and forth to both of those passages, John 4 and 1 Kings 11. Here's the first point from our gospel. Beware lest you try to satisfy your longings outside of God. Beware lest you try to satisfy your longings for joy outside of God. So every human experiences this longing for joy and for wholeness, and yet every human is never satisfied this side of heaven because only Jesus Christ in his fullness can satisfy this desire. So we just heard uh, Father Herb read this gospel reading to us from John 4. It's probably a familiar story. You've heard it before. You've read it before. This woman at the well. If you haven't, let me encourage you today. Go home. Open up the scriptures and read John chapter 4. It's an amazing story of this woman and her encounter with Jesus at the well. And so much is going on, so many layers to this story. First of all, Jesus is traveling through, a, through Samaria, which is an area of religious difference for the Jews. Maybe one way to think about it is like a Catholic uh, driving through a, a totally Protestant town. You know, similar, but some differences there. His disciples leave him. They go into town to buy food. And at midday, a woman goes to the well by herself. And what does this indicate about the woman? It means she's not part of the social class of the town. She doesn't go when the other women are going. 
She's socially isolated. We find out later in the story that she's lived a sexually illicit lifestyle. And because of this, there's an isolation, a separation, her from everyone else. And several boundaries are crossed in their conversation. You, you've got a male talking to a, a married female. You've got a religious leader talking to a sinful lawbreaker. You've got a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. What would this look like today? I kind of imagine in my mind's eye this would be someone like someone from the church speaking maybe to an ex-felon, visiting their apartment. You know, they've got a, a blow-up mattress on the floor perhaps and a TV, but there's, there's a social isolation that they've, that's happened in their life because of things that they've done and things that have happened to them. It might be something like that. It might be something like a single mom with a handful of children who's working multiple jobs and never able to show up on a Sunday morning to church. There's a social isolation that's happening. The church always finds itself among the outsiders because that's where Jesus seemed to spend his time. The church thrives when it loves those the world calls unlovable. And so Jesus and this woman have a conversation, and they have a conversation about what I was speaking about a minute ago, this longing, the desire for joy that every human has. She's never found it. So Jesus asks her in effect, here's like the subtext of the conversation. He asks her, what is it you desire which is a really interesting question. Like, how would you respond to that? If someone walked up to you and said, what is it you're really longing for in life? How could you answer that right now? What is it you really desire? What is it you want? What is it that what you think would make you happy at this point in your life? She's not able to answer this question. I suspect many of us would have difficulty giving an answer in the moment. What is it you really want in life? So Jesus looks at her and says, you have a thirst. You have a thirst for joy that you're not able to satisfy. So he asks her, would you call your husband? Maybe we can talk about this together, kind of a family meeting. And she mentioned she has no husband. Jesus, of course, is aware of this. And he says, you've had five husbands, but still this longing that you have, this desire for joy has not been satisfied. The joy you've sought hasn't come. What Jesus is pointing out is that her longing for intimacy is right. Her longing for fulfillment, her longing for joy is right. But the way she's gone about seeking it has been wrong. Isn't able to quench this desire for joy that she has. So think about this for a minute. Think of the many different ways that you know that humans try to satisfy this desire for joy, this longing for permanent joy. We all know parents who over-parent their children. More than just like helicopter parenting, there's just like this wrap-up protection to them, so much so that what often happens is children, when they're 18, just flee out of the house wanting to escape, that they've put their sense of joy onto their children, trying to hold their children a certain way. They can't live under the stifling pressure, so they're... The children run, run away from their parents' misplaced love. Or think about this. We all know marriages where one spouse puts all their hope for joy in another spouse. And you know those marriages never end well. They're either unhappy or they end up falling apart because that other spouse cannot meet all the demands that joy is asking. We all know people who try to answer this longing through work. They throw themselves headlong into their work thinking that's where the joy will come. These kind of people, and I love them, but they make terrible friends. They're always apologizing for putting work ahead of you, ahead of the friendship. 
And then we all know people, of course, who prioritize winning or succeeding at all costs, thinking that is the thing that will finally bring joy in their life, this permanence of joy. But this feeling of goodness and joy never lasts through the relationships, never lasts through an honest day's work, never lasts through visiting a new city, meeting a new friend. If we demand of a friend that they meet all of our needs, if we demand of a relationship they become for us joy, if we listen to the same song, the same soundtrack over and over again, thinking that will reinstill this sense of joy in us, you know what happens. You grow tired and bored of it in the end. You become bored of relationships, bored of music, bored of other. No longer. The joy isn't the thing. Joy comes through that. Instead, beware lest you forget the Lord. Every human is created by creator, which means you're designed by someone else with an instinctive love for him, for your creator. All the longings for joy that come through these things, they are simply signposts pointing back to him. They are signs along the road trying to remind you, trying to say you won't find joy in this. Only in God, your creator, will you find a joy. This is how C.S. Lewis again captures this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He says, think about this. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So if, you, if you've got your uh, John 4 open right now, look how Jesus responds to the woman in verse 14, because this is so telling, and this is the answer to this joy question. How do you have joy? How do you have this unending joy, this desire that you have? Where do you see peace from it? And he says this. He says, you are thirsty for joy. Whoever drinks of this water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Whoever comes to me is like a spring of water, perpetually filled, bubbling up. That deep longing God has given you, finally slaked in relationship with me. The longing is right, but you can only find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You know, our culture right now is thirsty for God. It's like society, Austin, is thirsty absolutely for God. One way you see this is a thirst for connection, a thirst for intimacy. This past week, our young adults, we had a seminar with um, Dr. Aaron Moniz, and um, it was on dating in the kingdom of God. And some people thought that, you know, you were going to get there and you're going to figure out, like, Tinder or what, what app am I supposed to be using? What's the best way to go about dating in the, the modern world? How should I do it? And we didn't go there at all. That's not where she started. Instead, she took us one step backwards, and she said, what does the desire to date actually show you? Shows you that what you're longing for is intimacy. What you want is intimacy, and as long as you're seeking intimacy in another person, you'll never get it. You place too many demands on the person, so the, the key to dating really is return to the gospel. Only Jesus can satisfy all of the longings you have. That's not just for a single person. That's for every human she applied it beautifully to our young adult community. Think about Gen Z. This is the Gen Z is a generation born after 1996, and all the studies suggest right now this is a generation thirsty for justice. 
thirsty to see rightness in the world, concerns about fairness in race, about women's rights, the environment, having leaders of integrity. That's the longings of this generation. And they want to know if Christianity offers any kind of answer to the deep injustices that we see in the world. It's a thirst for righteousness, to which, again, only Jesus Christ is the answer to that thirst. Only Jesus Christ, the righteous one, can truly bring a justice that lasts, a justice that is permanent. Any other correction to injustice is merely one power play on top of another, constantly toppling one another down. Only the truly just one can right the injustices of the world. The thirst is right, but it'll only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our society is thirsty for leaders who are willing to love and to serve. Where does that longing become fulfilled? The God who steps down, takes up towel and basin to wash his disciples' feet. Every longing you have is aimed at God, and beware. Beware lest you try to fill that longing anywhere else outside of God. You won't be satisfied. It is only in Jesus Christ that longing is fulfilled. That's our first caution. All of humanity has longings that can only be satisfied in Jesus. Let's look at the second caution now, which comes from the life of Solomon, and we're going to look at the question, how does a Christian, how does someone who follows the Lord forget the Lord? You know, this is the, what we're talking about today. Beware lest you forget the Lord. So how does this happen in Solomon's life? We think about Solomon in 1 Kings, this is chapter 11, and a couple things to know about Solomon. He is the son of David and Bathsheba. He's the third king of Israel. He's renowned for his wisdom and his wealth. He built the first temple. His name means peaceful. You know, Solomon is related to the word shalom. And um, Solomon lived up to his name. If you read the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, you see this wise and wealthy and really wonderful ruler, like just renowned for his wisdom. We even, like in our society, we remember that story about the wise king who two prostitutes come forward claiming they have these children and you know, there's only one child left, and Solomon says, bring a sword out. We're going to cut him in half. That was, that was him. That was in the Bible is where that story comes from. That's his wisdom at work. He was so wealthy that you remember the Queen of Sheba comes to visit him and just to understand how big is your wealth? What all do you have going on here in Israel? There's this kind of golden age that's going on in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 through 10, and he's a king fully devoted to God. He builds the temple, dedicates it. God's presence is poured out on people, but in chapter 11, something changes, and this chapter becomes the hinge of the downfall of Israel. Read this in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Okay, I have no idea if he had a thousand wives or if he just had a lot of wives. I'm not sure if that's a stylized number or an actual number, but it's clear from this point Solomon had many that he had taken from other nations. Beware lest you forget the Lord. What happened to Solomon? Like, What happened to this person who had literally had had dreams of the Lord. You know, what happened to this person who literally saw God's presence poured out in the temple? You might ask the question this way, what happened to your friend, your family member, who had had this experience with Christ but no longer follows? 
Like, what had happened in that person's life? We read Solomon is married to so many women that in his old age he turns away. And it's not polygamy that Holy Scripture is frustrated with here. You can go throughout Scripture and it will condemn polygamy. But that's not what's being condemned in this particular moment. Instead, what Scripture chastises Solomon for is not the marriages themselves, but through the marriages, he's turning to these other gods for help. Like Solomon, you know Yahweh. You know the God of Israel, and yet you're turning to these other gods for help, to bless you, to care for you, to protect you. Hundreds of years before Solomon was king, in Deuteronomy, in the law, we read a warning to any king who would come. I'll put this up. This is Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 says, if you come into the land, and Israel, if you at any point begin to have a king, this is how the king should act. And here's the warnings. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. And if you read the end of 1 Kings chapter 10, it's all about how many horses and how many war chariots Solomon has. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray, which is exactly what we see here. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Instead, when the king takes his throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, and it is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and to follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, meaning and when a king comes to power, he should know God's word so deeply. The first thing he does is he sits down and copies out the Torah. He knows it so deeply, he remembers it every day, he lives it, he embodies it towards the people of Israel. It assumes he's never finished studying God's word, never finished learning from it. He's never become master over it, but always underneath it. Solomon lives this faithful life for so many years. And we would have said he's like an elder around the church, and yet his heart is still turned away. The longing for wisdom and peace that had originally led Solomon to God, he had forgotten. He sought peace apart from God. How might this apply to us? Last week, I, uh, I spoke about John Wesley and that experience of him having his heart strangely warmed, uh, this experience with the Spirit. I want to speak about John Wesley again. He preached a sermon one time that I think has staying power even for today. It's called The Danger of Riches. The Danger of Riches. And in The Danger of Riches, he says every Christian, every person who becomes a Christian immediately faces a danger of riches. He says because what will happen is, think, imagine, uh, he says, imagine a man, and this is in the 1700s in England, the height of the Industrial Revolution. He says, imagine a man who becomes a Christian, and instantly, what does he do? He stops drinking. He begins to learn how to read. He might not have been literate, so he learns how to read. He teaches his family how to read so they can all read and study the Bible together. And then because he's following the Lord, he begins to be mindful of how he's spending his money, recognizing his money's not his. So he actually begins to not spend it foolishly, but just to, to use it wisely. And because of that, because he's reading, because he's not drinking, because he's just noticing where his money goes, he gets a promotion at work. And so he just kind of gains upward in the world. He, he increases his social mobility. And as this happens, if a man who does this, who becomes a Christian, you'll notice he starts making more money. He starts saving more money. And there's this weird effect that Wesley was noticing that it just stops right there. 
And people who had been following the Lord would stop later in their life from following the Lord. And he says, because they don't go the final step and give all their money. They make all they can. They save all they can. Following Jesus has actually changed their life from a social perspective. But then they don't give the money away. It's the danger of riches, the danger of becoming a Christian. This is Solomon. I've been made wise by the Lord. I've followed God's word. I've built a temple, yet as he's aged, he's forgotten the Lord. And do you know how he forgets the Lord? It's not by wrong doctrine, but it's by wrong action. He disobeyed God first by amassing the wealth and the horses, the marriages to the non-Israelites, and his disobedience led him to wrong doctrine. When it comes to knowing God, you will only know him in direct proportion to how much you obey him. If you want to know God, if you want to know him deeply, if you wonder where has he been in my life more recently, then I would ask this, where have you obeyed him? Where have you surrendered to him? Where has he nudged your heart to lead you towards action and you've put it off saying, I don't have time for it right now or that might not be God, that's just my own thoughts coming up. Where have you obeyed him recently? No one ever wakes up one morning and loses their faith. You, you don't wake up and say, where did I put my keys? Where did I put my faith? I, I can't find them here in the, the nightstand. No one wakes up saying that. What happens is, over the course of years, you say no to obedience. And the end result is you no longer believe. Christ Church, I don't say this to you often because you are so good, you're so faithful. I love this church, and I'm constantly impressed by the, the lives of generosity, the lives of faithfulness you live. But beware lest you forget the Lord. Beware lest you become prideful. Beware lest you're unwilling to forgive other people. Beware lest you forget the Lord. It is possible. It happens. Even the best of us, Solomon, can forget the Lord. Which brings us to you know, the ending of this series. We've been looking now at remembrances, and um, I just want to close down with just a, a pastoral word uh, as we end this series, becoming who we are. And we've been looking at all these different ways that we remember, and as we remember, it has this way of activating our true identity, your true identity. You are sons and daughters of the King, of Almighty God. Sometimes, maybe in this series, you thought, gosh, I have to do more stuff. I have to remember more things. I have to remember I was a slave in Egypt. Remember I'm dust. I have to now focus on remembering, beware lest I forget the Lord. You know, I, there can be this kind of anxiety that gets worked up and all that. And perhaps you might even be struggling with faith, wondering, how do I even remember? I'm, I'm in the middle of a season of doubt right here myself. And I would want to just add this over this whole sermon series, is it's not just you individually who are called to remember but it's you collectively, the church, who remind one another. Like any moment you ever feel doubtful about God, my strongest encouragement is come to church. Let the body of Christ remember with you, remember for you. Let the body of Christ around you tell the creed to you. Let the body of Christ serve the elements to you. Let the body of Christ remember with you, pray over you, bless you. Wherever you are, it is not just on you alone to remember. Is the work of you, the whole people of God, to remember with and for one another. It is a grace to be called into a remembrance and to step into identity that we remember you truly are sons and daughters of the King. We believe that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.